So this is the third lecture on the poetics. Uh, I'm just going to go through some more points, pretty much chronologically from the book, uh, to kind of get an idea. So towards the later part of the book, um, Aristotle looks at the idea of the tragic hero and lays out uh, four requirements for the tragic hero. The hero must be a good person, uh, a noble character, um, uh, somebody who has a strong moral purpose in life. The second quality of a tragic hero is the appropriateness. It's sort of an interesting thing to note that they're that the qualities that they display seem appropriate to who they are. <laughs> um, the hero must be a realistic. Uh, in other words, if they're drawn from myth, they must resemble that character the way they were in the myth. Um, the hero must be consistent. Uh, it doesn't mean that the person has to behave consistently, but they have to be written with a sense of consistency. Uh, accepting that Some characters are inconsistent, but that that inconsistency is written into the so that inconsistency of them is written is part of their consistency. Oh my god! Ah, oh, um, like plot, the behavior of the characters should seem necessary or probable. Now, this is what we call relatable. Uh, it's relatable. It's plausible, uh, in accordance to the internal logic of the personality of the character. Um. Aristotle thinks that the Lucis, L-U-S-I-S, or denouement, right, that the denouement should arise out of the plot and not depend upon stage artifice. Um, it should seem, again, organic to the material. Characters and plot ought to follow a probable or necessary sequence so that the denouement should be part of the sequence. Um, Intervention of the gods, Deus is machina, should be reserved for events outside the action of the play or events beyond human knowledge. The actual incidents themselves should not rely on miracles, but on probability and necessity. This is all according to Aristotle. Take it with a grain of salt. Uh, in order to reconcile the first requirement that the hero be a good person with the third requirement that the hero be realistic, relatable, plausible, etc., Aristotle recommends that the writer should keep uh, all of the distinctive characteristics of the person portrayed, uh, but make the characters seem a little bit better than they are. So, uh, which I think is a a kind of a cool thing to consider. Like when you're drafting a character, they're Maybe a slightly more heightened, this is what we call heightened, a slightly more heightened version of, of the person in real life. Um, so, for instance, in the Iliad, Homer repeatedly describes Achilles' hot temper, but also makes them seem heroic and, and you know, noble. Um, what a character wants, what their motives are, what they're willing to do to get what they want, why they want what they want, 
all these fall within the realm of character. Character must be inferred. Thought can be expressed directly. So the famous speech in Hamlet, to be or not to be, Hamlet sort of tells us <laughs> what he's thinking. The thought is expressed absolutely directly, um, but the character of Hamlet is more complicated and subtle. So, um, for example, why is Hamlet saying these things? <laughs> what makes him speak this way? Um, why does he ultimately do what he does, etc.? Right, that all is the mysterious part of drafting character, um, even if the thoughts are clearly expressed. Um, understanding thoughts for a character is a simple matter of interpretation. Understanding character is an uncertain procedure that requires psychological insight. So for Aristotle, there's that demand of unity of plot, um, and there's kind of a demand of unity of character in a way, that sense of consistency, um, an internal consistency in the character, an internal consistency in the plot, um, will feel will make everything seem inevitable, uh, in order to, according to uh, Aristotle. Um, now, I think one of the, you know, Euripides, is an amazing playwright from ancient Greece, um, wrote plays full of moral and psychological ambiguity. Uh, the motives aren't always clear. Uh, characters are, you know, their quote goodness or their nobility uh, in terms of moral characters is called into question and so forth. And it's one of the reasons that Aristotle and the Poetics prefers Sophocles to Euripides. Um, this is a, a matter of taste. Uh, I think it. Uh, I think just literally, Aristotle just liked liked Sophocles' plays more than Euripides' messy plays. What I will say is that I think contemporary drama owes a lot to Euripides, right? Those messy, messy, especially from a psychological perspective, messy, ambiguously moral plays of Euripides feel to me like the beginning of what later becomes modern drama. But there's kind of like the beginnings of it there uh, where, you know, you're confounded by how characters behave. You're like, um, you don't know, you know, I think for an audience, you're sometimes mystified. Uh, the Bacchae is a great example of this as a play if you don't know it. Uh, so I'm just going to keep uh, sort of describing some of the stuff in, here in uh, 
poetics. Aristotle distinguishes between six different kinds of anagnorisis. Um, I always forget how to say that, but uh, literally it means recognition. So um, first there is a recognition by means of signs or marks. Um, uh, in Odysseus, you know, a nurse recognizes him by virtue of a characteristic scar. An example of that. A sign or mark on the body. Uh, Aristotle considers this the least interesting uh, kind of recognition because it, for him it lacks a lack of it reflects a lack of imagination on the part of the writer. The second kind of recognition that um, is usually contrived by the author. This is also something that Aristotle does not like. So it's a recognition that. Um, doesn't fall into the logical sequence of the plot and seems extraneous. The third is a recognition prompted by memory. A disguised character may be prompted to weep or otherwise betray himself when presented with some memory from the past. The fourth is a kind of recognition that is happens through deductive reasoning. The fifth is recognition through faulty reasoning on the part of disguised character. So a disguised character might unmask themselves by exhibiting knowledge that only he could know. Six, the best kind, according to Aristotle, is the kind of recognition that is a natural part of the logical sequence of events of the play. And for this he held Oedipus in the highest regard, Oedipus the play, Oedipus Rex. Aristotle talks about how plots should be constructed. Uh, the writer should be able to visualize the action of a drama as visibly as possible. The writer should try to act out the events as he writes them, or she writes them, or they write them. The writer should outline the overall plot, the play, in a brief fashion, uh, even if it's just three sentences. Every play consists of a desis, D-E-S-I-S, or complication, and a lucis, L-U-S-I-S, or denouement. So every play consists of a complication and a denouement. A complication is everything leading up to the moment where the reversal of fortune happens. The denouement is everything after that reversal of fortune moment happens. So there's a point of no return, then there's a denouement, right? There are four distinct kinds of tragedies. For Aristotle, there's the complex tragedy, which has both a reversal of fortune and recognition. There's a second kind of tragedy, which is a tragedy of suffering, where you just kind of witness the suffering of characters. The third is the tragedy of character. So the idea of the character themselves are uh, fa uh, failing themselves. Right, and we're sort of witness to that. And the fourth is the tragedy of spectacle, right? Where the where the world where the world, you know, these plays that this is not true in Greek times, but it's certainly true in a lot of contemporary plays, where we're looking at kind of a landscape, and that landscape is a tragic landscape, and where the spectacle of that communicates the tragedy. Um Aristotle felt that uh, writers should um, 
write very focused incidents rather than try to tell the whole story, right? Uh, pick out and elaborate upon individual episodes. The chorus in a Greek play should be treated like an actor, and the choral song should also be integral to the story. Aristotle in their poetics then kind of has a little sidebar where he talks about choral songs, you know, lamenting the fact that sometimes choral songs have little to do with the action at all and they kind of distract. So he felt that everything should be integrated. Um, So the, I'm just going to refer to a little bit here on uh, Desis and Lucis. Um, so the Desis of a story, little means the tying, tying of a story. And Lucis means the untying of a story. So the denouement, which is a French word, obviously, is the untying of a story. Um, and it gives us a cool metaphor for understanding how Aristotle thought, Aristotle thought of how, sorry, how, how Aristotle thought of how tragedies work, right? So the plot is like a piece of string that is twisted up into a complex knot and then untied. The plot is structured around the moment of the reversal of fortune, where the knot begins to unravel. Every event before the reversal of fortune should serve to complicate the plot. And every event from the reversal of fortune onward should serve to untie these complications. We also speak of knots to refer metaphorically to tension. So a tragic plot builds up tension only to release it subsequently. It's one of the reasons that probably Aristotle treats catharsis as a desired effect of tragedy. The ultimate release of tension is this act of purgation. In the latter chapters of the Poetics, um, Aristotle talks about uh, thought and diction. Uh, thought is defined as um, everything that is affected by means of language. Uh, proving and disproving points, arousing emotions, deflating or inflating matters. So it's a bit exhibitions of thought. Thought is also closely linked to rhetoric, and Aristotle points to the more thorough discussion to be found in these writings later in the book. Um, Aristotle divides the subject of diction into eight parts, letter, syllable, conjunction, article, noun, verb, case, and speech. Um, Note that what Aristotle is referring to is spoken language, not written language. But one of the things to bear in mind is that um, Aristotle is thinking about dramatic writing. But really Aristotle is thinking about dramatic performance. 
So he's not analyzing a text. He's analyzing the embodiment of that text in performance. And I think that gets lost along the way, or has been gotten lost along, along the way since uh, over the centuries. Uh, but it's, a, it's really crucial to understand this uh, because I think it's where a lot of misconceptions around uh, even thinking or considering Aristotle occur, uh, but certainly even how people think about uh, dramatic writing in general. It's not literature. It's performance literature. And as such, its meanings, its meanings transmit and occur in performance. Its meanings on the page are only, I think, like a, a bare, you know, it's like reading a musical score. It's, it's, just, it's just the bare bones of what the real meanings of a work are and those interpretations around the work. Um, so in thinking about spoken language, which is, was Aristotle's focus when he was thinking about diction, he treats the letter as the fundamental building block of language, as a unit of sound, rather than as a single written character. Um, so this is a concept that I think may be unfamiliar to English speakers because it deals with the different uses of a word. Um, an equivalent for this can be how, let's say, how a word can change from having a question mark to a period to exclamation point to a comma that the, the meaning shifts depending on how it's punctuated. Unit of sound changes. The concept changes around the punctuation. Um, later, as Aristotle talks about diction, kind of jumping forward a little bit here in the poetics, uh, is thinking about how nouns are used, um, and then specifically how metaphor is used. So, um, and basically, I mean, I'm not gonna go into this extensively because I think it gets a little bit pedantic, but um, uh, to say that there's a kind of genus to species relationship um, where, you know, a more general term is used rather than a specific term. And obviously Aristotle is stating that, you know, if you use a more specific term, um, it changes how the metaphor lives in your mind. Um, I, I have mixed feelings about this particular chapter in the poetics. Um, so forgive me for going through it quickly. Uh, 
But um, basically, I mean, I'll sort of try to render this as best I can. Aristotle suggests that the use of ordinary words in ordinary language is mean and prosaic. Poetry can spice up the use of the terms. Uh, but he also says that poetry, it's sort of many contradictions in the poetics, that the use of poetry can also make language unintelligible, that too many for, foreign words and quotation marks will make the poetry barbaric. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. I have like all sorts of issues with this chapter in the poetics. So, um, so some key things to think about in terms of diction is that what, it, what basically Aristotle is saying is that apply the devices in moderation. So if you're going to write a play, uh, use a drama, you know, have the variety and have the different linguistic registers and different devices that you use, use them in moderation so that one doesn't exceed the other, so that the language is not unintelligible, uh, so that the metaphors can be grasped intuitively by an audience. That's basically, <laughs> basically, what he's trying to say. Uh, these sort of later chapters in the poetics I find uh, somewhat impenetrable. They're also, to be, to be fair, not as interesting as earlier writing. Uh, and it makes me wonder about the segments of poetics that are missing, for example. Um, and there, there's something in the writing of the poetics, even in translation, which again, is sort of called from other sources uh, attributed to Aristotle, uh, that feels like in this latter chapters, and specifically talking about chapters 20, 21, and 22 in the poetics, where it just doesn't feel like Aristotle is the one writing. Like, uh, you know, whatever voice, you know, if we talk about writing voice, whatever writing voice there was, the first part of the book, this part of the book feels like, I don't know who wrote this. <laughs> it's very odd. But um, it just gets all jumbled. Um, but, you know, it, it, it feels like there may be some, someone else's hand in here that's uh, adding these chapters. Um, But, you know, I, I, what I will say is that um, in this discussion of diction and discussion of metaphor, that uh, really Aristotle seems to have a really limited sense of what metaphor is. Um, he talks about it, and again, it, it doesn't seem like he really wrote this chapter, but um, he writes about metaphor, valuing metaphor only because it can raise it can raise language above the humdrum of everyday speech, but worries that metaphor can inhibit clarity, which seems like a very reductive thing to say. Um, but the idea of, I guess the idea of clarity is, is what's operative here. Uh, We know, of course, it's impossible to speak without using metaphors. So, so I think that uh, there's a devaluing here in this uh, chapter. I'm not going to linger on it because it's really painful. 
<laughs> I won't linger on it. Um, but what I will say is that uh, later in the book, um, Aristotle starts to talk about epic poetry um, and notes that there is there are some sorry there are similarities between tragedy and epic poetry. Epic poetry maintains a unity of plot. Um, uh, there's a focus on a particular story that has an organic whole. Um, let's think about the Iliad. Um, that epic poetry shares a lot of the elements of tragedy. Um, it should be either simple or complex. It should deal primarily with either a character or with suffering. Um, all the things that are part of tragedy are true in poetry and epic poetry, including uh, reversal of fortune and uh, recognition. Um, but there is a matter of length, and I think that then Aristotle goes around talking about some of the differences around tragedy and epic poems. And an epic poem, uh, an epic poem could last as long as a whole series of tragedies, provided it can present it can be presented in one hearing. The plot of an epic poem can be far more expansive because it is not limited to the stage. An epic poetry can jump back and forth between events happening at the same time in different places, which for Aristotle could never happen on stage. Now we know that that can happen because writers do it. Um, secondly, epic poetry should be narrated in a heroic meter. Uh, and Aristotle feels that tragedy is normally spoken in iambic. Um, So this question of realism comes up here because there's the idea that epic poetry can contain more fantastical elements and, and this idea that tragedy um, is happening before our eyes, so it has to be within the realm of human possibility. Um, what we do know is that in ancient Greece, actually... The stage machinery was very sophisticated, so actors could fly, for example. They were suspended on cranes, and uh, there, were, there were very, very early uses of what we would call magic lanterns. Um, so, and if you look at the comedies, um, Aristophanes uses a lot of these kind of devices, uh, devices of spectacle in his writing. Um, right, so let me just move forward uh, in the land of Aristotle. And basically the back end of the poetics, um, Aristotle, and again, who knows if um, how much of this is his writing or not? In uh, the poetics, as we get to the back end, it starts to get into an investigation around the idea of improbability, improbability, uh, adherences to realism. Uh, 
uh, he starts to contradict himself even around the notion of uh, epic poetry in and of itself. Um, basically, sort of <clears throat> at the end of the book, um, there's a kind of uh, holding up of the tragic and a dismissal of comic genre. Um, and an adherence to um, the tragic form. So that's um, some stuff around uh, the poetics. Um, I'm going to do some concluding remarks here because it gets a little bit uh, convoluted uh, sometimes in talking about the poetics. Um, So the main focus of the poetic is to defend the dramatic arts, which uh, he called the imitative arts, right? the arts that imitate life, because they invite us to place ourselves in complex and nuanced moral situations and to discern behind them the moral laws and patterns at work. Um, I'm going to bring this back that in the poetics, in drama, specifically tragedy. There are six elements, plot, character, thought, diction, music, and spectacle. Um, uh, tragedy uh, for Aristotle is an imitation of an action that is serious and complete and of a certain magnitude through pity and fear, affecting the proper purgation catharsis of these emotions. There are four kinds of tragedy and uh, all kinds of tragedy that exists uh, in drama. Uh, there's a tragedy that has a reversal of fortune and recognition, the tragedy of suffering, tragedy of character, and the tragedy of spectacle. Uh, and for Aristotle, the, the most complicated and interesting tragedies are the ones that have reversal of fortune and recognition uh, as part of their plot. Um, So we can look at Oedipus uh, and talk about Hamartia. So what is Oedipus's tragic flaw? Uh, it's unintended wrongdoing, right? So Oedipus displays excessive pride, anger, and hastiness. And his downfall comes with a series of unfortunate misjudgments uh, that are made as he continuously aims to do the right thing. So... I mean, one of the wonderful ironies uh, about Oedipus, the play, is that 
the act of blinding is because he has been blind all along. You know, the the symbolic and, of course, the violent act that happens in the play of blinding is reinforces the fact that Oedipus has gone through his life kind of blind. Blind with pride, blind with ambition, blind with ignorance, uh, blind with anger. And so that action feels like a, a, the self-punishment that happens in the play is related to, I mean, it, it works It works like such, a, such an incredible metaphor uh, because it, it mimics uh, the state that he's been in uh, this whole time. And it's, I feel like that act of his catharsis, the character, is an acknowledgement, is a recognition, not only of what, what's happened to him and, and what's befallen him, but also a recognition of uh, of who he is, you know, kind of the core of his soul. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm not going to kind of go... Uh, all, all too into this uh, at the moment, but um, what I will say is that you know I feel like you know uh, it's it's become the foundation of a lot of narrative theory, Aristotle's poetics, especially in the West, and. You know, Aristotle gives pride of place to the what in plays, and within this character he prioritizes plot. Uh, he calls characters agents that are imitated, uh, only insofar as they are necessary to the plot. Uh, tragedy is essentially an imitation not of persons, but of action and life, of happiness and misery. All human happiness or misery takes the form of action, the end for which we live is a certain kind of activity, not a quality. Character gives us qualities, but it is in our actions what we do. We are happy, or the reverse, tragedy, is impossible without action. But there may be one without character. The objects of poetic limitation are actions. For Aristotle, Aristotle, the characters are secondary. Now modern, of course, in modern and postmodern, uh, dramatists, Pose this, uh, contending that character development is equal, if not higher, than plot. Um, the organization of actions or events into a system is the emplotment, emplotment, uh, and it's in itself an activity. It's the shaping of events, giving them coherence. The actions the poet shapes into a plot do not come already organized. The plot is composed. Right, so the idea of composing something composed by the maker of the art object. The poetics is the art of composing plots. Plot is the first principle, the end, the purpose of tragedy. Again, since what Aristotle has to say about tragedy is, a par is paradigmic for all poetics, we can say that plot is the purpose of all narration. 
Since poetics is the imitation of action, and since plot is the first principle of poetics, it follows that the plot is the imitation of action. So imitation of action organizes the events of a plot. Mimesis is not an exact copy or replica. It, on the contrary, it produces something. Mimesis organizes events through emplotment. Narrative is the imitation of action. Imitation of action, equivalent to the organization of events. Aristotle goes on to say much about the nature of action imitated in the plot. The plot must be whole and have a certain magnitude, a beginning, middle, and end. The plot must be complete. For the plot to be whole, there must be an absence of chance. Necessity or probability must govern succession of the plot. Uh, Emplotment of the form, then, depends on the inevitability of its development. If there is an element of chance in the development of the plot, it will not be universal. Characters must act according to their natures, in accordance with psychological laws, universal behaviors. Plot is made plausible by relying on general psychological truths. So, the writer must understand human nature. Poetry is therefore higher than mere history. Poetry concerns the universal, whereas history concerns the singular. Um, i.e., you know, a character did such and such, whereas is a universal concern. Uh, but uh, in a play, we sort of see the why of why that happens. Since life does not have dramatic unity, to make a plot is to make the intelligible spring from the accidental, the necessary from the episodic. Even if real events are the subject of the narrative, the poet still makes it necessary, gives the events coherence. Um... And so on. I'm not going to sort of re <coughs> reinscribe this, but and that's it for now. Uh, I think that's a lot in the poetics. Um, it exists. You can read it. But I thought I'd give you kind of like a three-lecture breakdown of the main points uh, in the book um, as a way to kind of grounding uh, and also to accelerate uh, this process. Thanks for listening.